Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Kyogen. Kyogen is the leading global provider of sample-to-insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials. Assay technologies make these biomolecules visible and ready for analysis. Bioinformatics software and knowledge bases interpret data to report relevant, actionable insights. Automation solutions tie these together in seamless and cost-effective molecular testing workflows. Kyogen provides these workflows to more than 500,000 customers around the world in molecular diagnostics, human healthcare, applied testing, forensics, veterinary testing and food safety, pharma, pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, and academia, life sciences research. Today's presentation is titled, Multiplex PCR Technology, What Is It All About? and is being presented by Dr. Karen O'Hanlon-Court from Recovery APS in Copenhagen. After completing an honors bachelor degree in biological sciences, Karen received her PhD in fungal genetics from Maynooth University in Ireland in 2011. During her PhD, she investigated how certain gene products influence biology and virulence in the human pathogen fungi Aspergillus fumigatus. She then relocated to Denmark, where she held back-to-back postdoc positions, first looking at plant-fungal relationships, more specifically symbiotic relationships, which could be exploited for biological control of crop diseases, and later studying how the We1 protein is involved in protecting human cells from DNA damage. She has since then returned to her scientific roots, where she now works in a drug discovery company trying to develop new therapies for invasive fungal diseases. Alongside working full-time and being a mother to a busy three-year-old, Karen enjoys writing articles for Bite Size Bio and has a genuine interest in scientific communication. Now, as always, we have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Karen at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash multiplex dash PCR. So now over to you, Karen, for the presentation. Hello, uh, hello to everybody, and thank you very much, Amanda, for the very nice introduction. Um, thanks to you all for taking part in this webinar today, and thanks once again to Amanda and the team at Bite Size Bio for inviting me to, to present this webinar to you, and also thank you very much to Kyogen for sponsoring today's event. So without further ado, we will now have a look at multiplex PCR technology, and I will hopefully tell you what it is all about. Um, 
Before we go into the nuts and bolts of it, I will just give you a plan for the webinar today. So we will look at a, a range of different topics within Multiplex PCR, starting out with what it actually is. Uh, I will take you through some of the most popular applications of this technology. We will move on to look at the advantages as well as some important considerations and challenges that you may meet along the way. When we have been around about the main aspects, we will then talk about how to set up a multiplex PCR reaction. And I will give you some tips on how to troubleshoot some of the most commonly encountered problems that may arise. And at the end, I will leave you with some sources for further reading. So let's start with a simple question. What is multiplex PCR? As the name might suggest, multiplex PCR involves amplifying multiple DNA or RNA targets simultaneously in a single PCR reaction. In many ways, multiplex PCR is similar to conventional or real-time PCR, with the major exception, and this is quite a major exception, that multiplex PCR is using multiple primer pairs all at once. A heat-stable polymerase amplifies the templates. The reactions are carried out in a thermal cycler or a PCR machine, and the PCR products are detected and analyzed. So, as I said, uh, multiplex PCR is in many ways similar to conventional PCR, but yet not quite the same. So now I'd like to tell you a little bit about the history of multiplex PCR and when and, and sort of how it was developed. So the first reports of multiplex PCR arose in the late 1980s, so almost 30 years ago, um, where multiplex PCR was developed to detect deletion mutations in the dystrophin gene. And this work um, evolved uh, over several years. And so nowadays, multiplex PCR is actually one of the major ways in which um, the diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy and is made and how the various deletion mutations underlying this disease can be analyzed and characterized. In 1990, uh, a similar type of study emerged where multiplex PCR was used to study deletion mutations in the steroid sulfatase gene. This is a gene concerned with the metabolism of, of steroids that are produced in the body, for example, cholesterol and uh, deletion mutations and congenital deficiencies in this gene result in a number of disease phenotypes. By the mid to the late 90s, multiplex setups were uh, described for bacterial and parasite detection, so we're still within the diagnostic realm. Uh, by the late 90s, multiplex PCR was described for the, 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 excuse me, for the detection of a number of viruses, such as the herpes simplex virus, HIV virus and cytomegalovirus, as well as several viral known to be associated with cancer. And this list is by no means exhaustive. There were other viruses too. In 2008, so less than 10 years ago, multiplex PCR was described to analyze microsatellites and SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. And this underpins um, much of the technology that is used in DNA fingerprinting today, and we will talk a little bit about that in a moment. So, as you can see, in a relatively short time period, multiplex PCR has developed quite a lot, and today it's used for all of the things that I just described, but perhaps it's uh, most uh, rapidly evolving within the field of cancer diagnostics. So this technology is used to detect known, but also to find new gene expression signatures, which might be indicative of, of cancer or a predisposition to cancer. 
multiplex PCR can be used to assess relative copy numbers of certain cancer-related genes, such as the HER2 and the topoisomerase 2 alpha genes in breast cancer. And this kind of work can be really um, important, especially in cancers which have a familial inheritance component. And such approaches can not only lead to improvements in the diagnostics, but they can also help to predict therapeutic outcomes. So they're extremely uh, breakthrough and very, very promising uh, uses of multiplex PCR. And I've already given away um, many of the applications of multiplex PCR, but in case I've left anything out, I'd now like to just go through a couple of major categories where multiplex PCR is widely used today. So within the forensic sciences, multiplex PCR is used in DNA fingerprinting, and this is concerned with the analysis of short tandem repeats. So short uh, regions of DNA which are scattered throughout the genome of all individuals, which are um, very similar between individuals, but yet different enough so as that we can distinguish one individual from another. And uh, by taking advantage of this difference, uh, DNA fingerprinting has proved to be um, invaluable in crime solving and also in the identification of um, the remains of missing persons, for example. Within clinical diagnosis and virology, um, as I mentioned previously, multiplex PCR is very useful in diagnostics, but it's also useful in monitoring viral loads. And here I'm talking about how much virus a person actually has in their blood. And the beauty of multiplexing is that one sample of blood can be used to analyze many different viruses all at once. And this can be very useful in monitoring um, the response of a patient to a particular course of antiviral treatment. And as I mentioned already, multiplexing can be used to detect pathogens. Within genetic testing, this is another huge area where multiplexing is used. Um, it's used to genotype single nucleotide polymorphisms and disease-associated alleles, as well as those which are involved in cancer development, as I talked about previously. And it's also used in paternity and maternity testing. Within research, there are many uses. I've just taken two along here. Uh, multiplex PCR is used to analyze gene expression to get a better understanding of biological pathways and it can also be used within genome research. And lastly, but by no means least, multiplex PCR is used within food and environmental science sector whereby it can be used to detect traces of microorganisms or um, which may be dangerous for food safety or which may also indicate that microorganisms who produce mycotoxins have been present as well as detecting uh, the absence or presence of genetically modified organisms. So given the fact that there are so many uh, applications for multiplex PCR and that it has developed so rapidly in a relatively short space of time one could imagine that it offers many, many advantages, and it does. Um, firstly, it can be considered, uh, when it's up and running and everything is running smoothly, it can be seen as a very cost-effective, time-saving and high-throughput technique. And this is really down to the fact that many targets are amplified simultaneously. So in the long run, using a multiplex setup, you will use less reagents and you can also possibly reduce your personnel costs. 
in my mind, the true beauty of multiplex PCR is that you can use limited material. And this is, again, because many targets are amplified simultaneously. And this uh, advantage is particularly important in the clinical setting where patient samples are often very, very limited in amount. So this allows you to get huge amounts of data from very, very small starting material. Um, which uh, would not be possible if you were doing single-plex reactions. As well as these, um, multiplex PCR offers very high precision, and this is especially important in reverse transcription PCR or gene analysis, where the target and the housekeeper gene will be amplified in the same well. And this offers uh, less well-to-well less, less -well variability than we would get if we were carrying out single-plex uh, RT-PCR, where a target and a housekeeper gene would actually be amplified in different wells. And lastly, um, I'm not sure this is a true advantage or if it's just something that you can um, use to your advantage when you carry out multiplex PCR, but it is possible to carry out many quality checks in every single well, and this can really boost the quality of your data. So uh, to do this, you could include an exogenous nucleic acid as an internal control in every well. So this could be um, a piece of purified DNA that you know the quantity of, and by including this in every single reaction, you can, uh, and assuming it has been through the same process as your targets have, you can monitor the success of sample preparation. You can monitor for the absence of inhibitors if you have a nucleic acid control, which is quite sensitive to PCR inhibitors. And you can also get a feeling for the overall success of PCR, because including an exogenous nucleic acid should, uh, should give you the same kind of results every time if your assay is robust and reproducible. So let's say you wanted to start doing multiplex PCR. Um, this would be the typical workflow that you would carry out. You would first of all identify the targets that you want to assess. So this could be genes or it could be messenger RNAs. Um, when you have this done, you will then optimize the nucleic acid extraction protocol and or the cDNA synthesis step. If you are looking at gene expression analysis, you will start with high quality RNA, which you will then use to produce cDNA. And at some point, you will have to decide on which detection method you would like to use. And we'll come back to detection methods in quite some detail later on. When you have that decided on, you can then design primers and probes if necessary. And when all of these things are in the house, you can then go about setting up the multiplex PCR. But you will need to start out with optimizing the individual PCR reactions first, as all primer pairs need to be optimized individually before they can be combined in a multiplex reaction. And once you are happy that you have optimized the individual PCR reactions, you will then run a multiplex reaction with all primers at once. And you can from here either validate the data or optimize further. And it's important to say, you may need a few cycles of running and optimizing before you can get data. So this is a technique which, which can require large amounts of optimization. So it's good to be, it's good to be patient. Um, so I said I would go into a little bit the detection of multiplex PCR products, and there are several ways of doing this. As I see it, these detection methods can be broken into two categories. On the left, we have the electrophoresis category, and on the right, we have the fluorescence detection category. So let's just take electrophoresis first. So within electrophoresis, we have standard agarose gel electrophoresis, which many of you will be familiar with. And we also have capillary electrophoresis. And capillary electrophoresis is simply like a mini gel on a chip in some way. 
Um, and using either of these techniques, you will have some flexibility in the sense that you can modify the strength of your gel according to your amplicon size. But it's important to remember that agarose gels are only suitable for small target numbers in general. And this is because there's a limit to how many DNA fragments you can actually uh, distinguish from each other in one lane of an agarose gel. As well as this, the low sensitivity offered by agarose gels at times can make quantification difficult. And in fact, very low, lowly amplified or weakly amplified uh, targets may not even be obvious on an agarose gel at all. It also offers low throughput. So anyone who has carried out agarose gel electrophoresis knows how much time is involved in casting the gel, setting the gel, loading, running the gel, and photographing the gel. It's quite a lot of work for quite little return. In any case, if you're going down this route, your amplicons must differ in size by at least 30 base pairs in order for them to be separated with any deal of, of confidence on the gel. Um, capillary systems are uh, they're offering a higher level of throughput than agarose gels are because you can easily run up to 96 samples at one time on the modern capillary systems. As well as this, the capillaries offer higher resolution and what I really like about them is many of them offer the possibility to monitor your samples being run in real time and you can also save the data electronically so that you can compare it with other data sets from other experiments. So they offer uh, quite a few advantages over standard agarose gels. Onto the fluorescence detection section, um, this is something that you will need to do in a sequencing instrument or in a real-time PCR cycler. So whether you can do this or not will depend on, on what equipment you actually have access to. In any case, it requires that you either have primers labeled with fluorophores that have distinct emission spectra, or you have target-specific probes that are each labeled with a distinct fluorescent dye or fluorophore and an appropriate quencher moiety. To use fluorescent setup, um, you need to be sure that the emission maxima of each dye is separate from the other dyes, and they must not overlap with each other because this will blur this will blur the picture of your of your results. As I mentioned earlier, um, these reactions must be carried out on real-time cyclers, but these real-time cyclers must also support multiplex analysis. So in other words, they have to have the possibility to excite and detect several non-overlapping dyes in the same Weller tube at the same time. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, electrophoresis detection because my feeling is that uh, people tend to know a little bit more about it than they do about fluorescence detection if they're starting out. So I'd like to use the next couple of slides talking about the fluorescence detection techniques. And I'd like to state here just to remind you if, if it has not been clear up to now, the ultimate goal and the challenge really within multiplex PCR is to detect, differentiate and provide a quantitative result for many targets without a single target influencing the detection of the others and without a loss of sensitivity. And this is really a, a big puzzle sometimes. And this is really uh, what takes time in setting up a good multiplex PCR reaction. But locally, there are a number of commercial dye systems that are compatible with multiplex PCR. And the first one I mention here is not because it's the most compatible, but it's probably because it's one that most people are aware of. So it's an intercalating dye called Cybergreen. And it should really be used with caution in multiplex PCR. In fact, 
in the literature, the jury seems to be out on whether it can be used at all. And this is because CyberGreen intercalates with double-stranded DNA in a very non-specific manner, so it can be challenging to distinguish one amplicon from the next. In theory, discrimination of targets should be possible, as long as the melting temperatures of the amplicons are different enough. Um, I won't be going into detail on melting temperatures and, uh, and how you can uh, assess melting temperatures of amplicons today, but I did uh, present a webinar earlier in the year about qPCR where I touched a lot on melting curves and melting temperatures, and in fact, much of the information in the next slides uh, can be supplemented by looking at the previous webinar. So that's worth checking out also. Um, aside from the intercalating dyes, we also have the target-specific, or perhaps better known as fluorescent quencher probes, that each emit fluorescence at different wavelengths. So when I mention, when I refer to the fluorescent quencher probes, I'm really talking about the kind of probes that you would use in real-time PCR. Again, these are covered in some detail in the previous webinar. A question that often comes up in multiplexing is how many targets can be analyzed at any one time. And the truth is, I don't have the answer. Um, it can be dependent on a multitude of different factors. And in many ways, like many aspects of multiplex PCR, the number of targets that you can analyze is very project dependent. It will first and foremost depend on the equipment and resources you have available. Um, if you only have access to standard agarose gels, you're going to be in the low end of the number of targets that you can analyze. Um, it also depends on whether your data needs to be quantitative or qualitative. So if you need very quantitative data, you probably need to move away from the agarose gel system, which will put you into the capillary systems or some of the fluorescent systems, which may already offer the possibility to look at more targets. In any case, it will be very much influenced by how many good primer sets you can actually design, and this will very much depend on your sequences. So if you are looking at um, a group of genes that are quite similar to each other, it could be challenging to design a lot of very specific primers. So this will put a restriction on how many targets you can, you can look at at one time. In real-time PCR, depending on uh, the equipment you have and assuming that your equipment can multiplex, the number of channels available for color detection is often limited to four or five. And this, um, this little picture on the right-hand side is just to illustrate what area of the spectrum we're in when we're doing fluorescence detection. And as you can hopefully see on the left-hand side, we have four main groups of, um, of dyes and the uh, wavelengths at which they are detected at. And these four groups represent the four main um, channels or color possibilities or detectors that you would have in a standard real-time PCR machine. So this is something that you very much need to keep in mind when you're planning your project. A little bit more about probes. Um, and I purposely showed you the last slide about the, about the, uh, the number of targets so that I could uh, lead into this slide in a way not to go back and forth from probes too many times. But uh, in general, probes should have a melting temperature of seven to eight degrees higher than the amplification primers themselves. And, and this will allow the probe to anneal first, which is very important because you don't want to get into a situation where the primers anneal first without the probe and then they go undetected and then you don't get the real picture. So that's very important. Um, 
It is also uh, impossible to realize that the number of fluorescent labels available and some overlap in their emission spectra can make quantification of multiplex amplicons challenging at times. So to avoid a situation where your most abundant target is detected by the most intense dye and, and therefore you risk maybe um, blocking the signals of your other amplicons, you should organize your assay in such a way that the most abundant target is actually detected by the least intense dye. Um, as well as this, there are other options uh, coming out which I won't have time to address today, but I have left you with some um, references at the end of the webinar which you can go to to read more, but there are target-specific probes or labeled primers hybridized to beads with distinct fluorescent profiles that may expand the number of colors you can detect, as well as the emergence of chemically tagged primers and probes which allow, again, an even larger panel of targets to be assessed simultaneously. But these uh, systems require uh, quite uh, advanced equipment, so it's it may not be it may not be relevant to the standard multiplex user, but they're worth checking out because they're very interesting and very very exciting. I think. Uh, at the risk of sounding too negative, um, there are significant challenges of multiplex PCR, and I think it's good to be aware of them before you go into this kind of project. Um, so if we just consider for a moment conventional or real-time PCR, we are concerned with a reaction containing template DNA, two primers or one primer pair, an enzyme, DNTPs and buffer. And in these setups, products are analyzed by either gel electrophoresis or fluorescence detection. However, in multiplex PCR, it's important to remember that if one target requires two specific primers, then two require four, three require six, and so on. So quite quickly, it can get quite complicated. Uh, each amplicon that you want to detect must either be a different size, if you want to use gels, or must be labeled with a dye that is spectrally different from the others in the reaction. Um, sometimes competition, competition between targets for PCR components can occur, and this can mean that the highly abundant targets are detected while less abundant ones fade into the background. And it's possible to get around this um, with some steps that we will come to a little bit later. But the key is really to find a set of reaction parameters that allow all primers to anneal with high specificity to their targets and be extended with the same efficiency. And the take home message is good primer design is the holy grail of multiplex PCR. So luckily there are a number of multiplex PCR primer design tools available to us and if somebody was to ask me how would you go about designing suitable primer pairs I would always say consult design software and of course back it up with, with um, some additional pointers which I will give you in the next slide. There are a number of free primer design resources online such as the integrated DNA Technologies real-time PCR calculator, primer 3, GenScript, primer design tool, and lastly, um, but by no means least, it can be a very, very good idea to blast all primer sequences against your organism of interest, as this will help you to reduce off-target priming. Um, and if you are carrying out fluorescence detection where you need to design probes, you can also make use of the vast number of probe design resources, which are also available online. So even though you have a lot of online tools that you can use to design primers, it's a good idea to have an idea of 
what the right parameters should be. So let's have a look at the lowdown of multiplex primer design. And these criteria I have gotten from um, sort of going through different uh, protocols and trying to put together sort of a ballpark set of criteria. But you should also always consult um, the product uh, details for whatever multiplex PCR product you're using because they often come with some quite specific guidelines on how to design primers. Generally speaking, you should go for a primer that is 21 to 30 nucleotides in length with a GC content of somewhere between 40 and 60%. And you should aim for an amplicon length of around 100 to 150 base pairs. This is kind of similar to real-time PCR. Very importantly for multiplexing, um, you should aim for melting temperatures of your primers above at least above 60 degrees, some places say above 68 degrees, as the higher melting temperatures will, will give more specificity to the primer. Um, you can easily calculate the melting temperature with a simple formula where you take two times the number of A's plus T's and add it to four times the number of G's plus C's. And you should aim for similar melting temperatures for all primers um, because this will maximize the chances that they will all be specific under the same set of cycling conditions. The annealing temperature will be dictated by the melting temperature to some extent. And if you have access to a gradient PCR machine, I would highly recommend performing a gradient PCR to find the optimal annealing temperature for every primer pair. And also, if you have access to real-time PCR machine, I would also suggest carrying out um, standard curves so you can get an idea of the PCR efficiencies for all primer pairs used and, and aim that they are all working at the same efficiency. Some general tips on what to avoid on sequence on the sequence level. Um, you should always avoid complementarity of through or three bases at the three prime ends of primer pairs to reduce primer dimer formation. And you should always avoid mismatches between the three prime end of the primer and the target template sequence. In addition, runs of three or more G's and C's at the end will, will um, make it uh, difficult for efficient priming and specific priming. And you should always completely avoid complementary sequences within primers and then between primer pairs. And if you have all that sorted out, um, then there are some other considerations which are not only relevant for multiplexing, but PCR in general. But let's have a look at quality and quantity and how that will influence the multiplex PCR reaction. So all PCRs are sensitive to certain impurities such as proteins, phenylchloroform, salts, ethanol, etc. that can be present in nucleic acid extractions. So it's a good idea to choose a good cleanup system for your starting material. So it's worth going into this with good quality material. There are multiple kits available on the market to clean up your DNA and your RNA. Quantity can also play a big role. So the ratio of primer to template will strongly influence the specificity and efficiency of PCR and should always be optimized because too little template can result in primers not being able to find the complementary sequences, while too much template may lead to an increase in mispriming events. Uh, nowadays, there are a lot of commercialized kits available which actually allow efficient primering over quite a wide range of template concentrations. So this will make things easier for you and will allow you to, to be a little bit more flexible. So they're also really good. 
So with all of the considerations taken into account, I think you are ready to talk about how to set up a multiplex PCR. So you will start out by isolating your nucleic acid uh, plus cDNA synthesis if necessary. If you're doing cDNA synthesis, make sure to include a no reverse transcriptase control when you analyze your, uh, so that you can include this when you analyze your PCRs. You should find the optimal annealing temperatures for every primer pair by gradient PCR if, if you have access to it. And you should also find and equalize the PCR efficiencies for every single primer pair. Um, before you can validate multiplex uh, PCR setups, you need to run singleplex and multiplex reactions side by side, ideally on the same place. And so what I mean here is you will take every pair of primers and you will run them with your target individually on one side of the plate and then on the other side you will run your multiplex reactions. And what you're going for is a situation where both sets of data give quite similar uh, results. In this way you can validate your multiplex setup. It's a very good idea to include an exogenous nucleic acid for quality control and I would say include at least duplicates if not triplicates for each reaction. If one PCR product yields a much weaker signal or a much weaker band on, a, on an egg roast gel than the others, increase the primer concentration for this target and then vice versa. So if one PCR product yields um, a very, very strong band compared to the others, then you should reduce the primer concentration for this target. I then have some practical tips for multiplex PCR, which can really be used for all kinds of PCRs. You should give yourself plenty of time because it, it does take time and you should label, 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 write everything out beforehand. Um, if you have, if you have the time for it, I think you should make the time for it. Plan out your 96 well plate, even if it means drawing out 96 boxes and writing exactly what's going in every well and then stick it up on the cupboard before you when you're doing your work because this will really help you to uh, keep track of everything. Have a clean and tidy workspace. Consider using a sterile cabinet if you are working in a microbiological lab and don't want to risk contamination. Use dedicated pipettes and nuclease-free filter tips. After cDNA synthesis, always do a test PCR to ensure that there is actually cDNA so that you don't spend a very long time amplifying nothing. Mix your reagents well when making master mixes and spin your PCR plates briefly before you run them if you are running plates. If you're running tubes, spin tubes. Aliquot your template and primers to prevent multiple freeze-thaw cycles. Store your primers in a buffered solution for long-term storage. Uh, perform a melting curve analysis um, plus possibly agarose gels after real-time PCR runs if using CyberGreen. This is important to, to, to have an idea on how many amplicons were actually uh, detected and how and um, yeah and also how specific the primers were because a melting curve analysis will allow you to to see any off-target uh, amplifications that have occurred. If you're in doubt about any of your samples um, it's always a good idea to run them on an agarose gel because it's the best way of seeing what actually happened. You can also see primer dimers very nicely there as well. And if in doubt, just find somebody else who knows more than you and ask them. Um, so they were my practical tips. I also have some tips on how you can make sense of your data. Um, there are a number of software platforms available online for raw uh, real-time PCR data analysis, and many of these can also be used for multiplex uh, data analysis. 
So for example, there's the RT squared profiler PCR array data analysis tool, and then there's the LINREG PCR. Both of these are freely available online, and they just involve you uploading uh, your raw data, and they also provide templates which show you how to um, upload your raw data. So I have links for these at the end of the webinar. A lot of the modern, if not all, of the modern real-time cyclers have built-in software, so this makes it very easy to analyze data. You should also, and you should always do this during the validation step, compare multiplex data to singleplex data. And um, you should consider making tenfold dilution series of your sample with six to seven dilution steps. Run each assay, so for each primer pair, run a PCR individually and then in multiplex for each dilution in the series and see if the two setups give you the same kind of results and also see if the standard curves are straight and are replicates that you include tight. Multiplex and singleplex data should be comparable, otherwise there's something wrong. Um, this is a little bit repetitive now. Um, I've also said you could run melting curves or agarose gels to see if there were any unexpected products. If you do have difficulties with unexpected products, there are a couple of additional things you could do to uh, improve the situation. So you could use a hot start DNA polymerase to reduce mispriming um, during PCR. So this is a polymerase which is uh, deactivated at lower temperatures. So it um, really reduces the extension of primers which bind at uh, which bind on specifically. You could also look at your exogenous control to make sure that it behaves consistently and just ask yourself the question, do your data make sense? Because a lot of the time when you start out a multiplex experiment or when you even when you start out a, a real-time PCR experiment, you often have an idea about what it is you want to what you want to detect. So sometimes you can just look at the data straight away and say, actually, that makes sense. Or you can say, that doesn't make sense at all. So a bit of common sense can go a long way when, when analyzing your data. The last couple of considerations to leave you with, um, this is probably not a kind of setup you want to do if you only have a limited amount of time in the lab, because there will be significant initial investment, uh, such as the time and cost invested in setting this up and optimizing it. And you have to weigh those up against the potential benefits of multiplexing. On the other hand, if this is going to form the basis of your career, and these are the genes that you're going to spend the next um, few years working on, then it's probably a good idea to set it up this way for yourself. The primary design challenges, I think we have covered them by now. Um, another consideration um, is that it can, it can really help to have prior knowledge of the relative quantities of your targets. And this is because, um, as I mentioned previously, there can be a competition between targets for the components of the PCR, such that very abundant targets can rapidly deplete uh, DNTPs, for example. Um, this can be addressed quite easily by lowering the primer concentration of the very abundant target, causing it to plateau earlier and then leaving components available for the other targets to be amplified. I told you in the beginning that uh, being able to use limited starting material was a huge advantage of multiplex PCR, and that is true. But sometimes the starting material is just a little bit too limited. And if this happens, um, this can easily be fixed. You can carry out a pre-amplification step, 
um, to create more starting material and there are a number of kits available for this. Actually nowadays there really is a kit for everything. So many of the challenges and many of the considerations that I have drawn your attention to can actually be um, addressed with a lot of things that are available commercially. No problem cannot be fixed. Um, the troubleshooting, I have left it kind of short because um, there are sort of troubleshooting uh, issues which can arise quite regularly and then there are other issues which may be more project specific. There's a ton of information out there on the internet so I have just gone with the most, um, as I see it, the most uh, commonly arising issues. So one issue could be that you get poor amplification of some or all of your targets and there are certain things that you can do to, to try and um, solve this problem or at least find out what the problem actually is, is, is caused by. So you would always start out by checking the pipe heading accuracy, checking that all components are present, um, ensure that you carried out a hot start step if, um, if you're using a hot start polymerase, check uh, the annealing temperatures, the extension times again and again, re-examine all components, try increasing or decreasing template concentration because sometimes too much template can actually cause inhibition of PCR if the template in, in its own way has some impurities present. You could try increasing the cycle number or you could also consider that some of your reagents or even your target is actually degraded and just swap for new reagents and a new aliquot of your target. Another common problem is the presence of unexpected bands or unexpected amplicants. And if this happens, one of the first things you should look at is your primer design. You should consider if you just simply have off-target amplifications because your primers have been poorly designed. You could try to increase the annealing temperature to um, make it more stringent for the primers to anneal to their target. You could also consider if your target was actually contaminated with another target, so maybe a DNA from another genome. In this case, you could easily address that with taking a fresh aliquot of target. Again, uh, just as too much target can cause poor amplification, it can also cause off-target amplification if you simply have just too much DNA or you might just have too much polymerase, so you could try to lower the amount of polymerase in each reaction or you could try to lower the cycle number. So these are all quite simple things that you can do to address some of the most common problems. So hopefully they will help you on your way. I think we're more or less at the end. Um, I would like to leave you with some useful resources. There were some things which I would maybe like to have covered in more detail today, but um, I didn't get to, to do that in the time frame that we had. So I could suggest looking at these two review articles. So they have covered many of the steps involved in optimizing and they go into a lot of detail on how to optimize primers and how to optimize primer concentrations and they also discuss how the concentration of other components such as magnesium and DNTPs in the reaction can actually influence the outcome. So they're really, really good go-to uh, resources. Here's uh, the information about the previous webinar I gave in June. It was called QPCR Tips, Workflow Applications and Troubleshooting. There was lots of information in here about probes, real-time PCR setup, much of which is relevant for the multiplex setup, and also the data analysis options. So that's a really good supplement for today's webinar. If you want to read more about chemically tagged probes, you can check out these two references. 
And if you're interested in using some of the online available data analysis tools, you can check out these two uh, resources here. So the first one is a link and the second one is an article which um, gives a link to that um, tool. So that was really it from me. Um, thank you very much for making it to the end. And I look forward to answering any questions that you may have. Thanks, Karen. That was an excellent presentation. And we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So Kyogen has a multiplex PCR kit. It's highly specific and sensitive for multiplex PCR and doesn't require any optimization. So you get to skip that time-consuming optimization step that Karen mentioned earlier. And it has high specificity and sensitivity with a built-in hot start polymerase. And it's highly suited for many different types of multiplex PCR applications. And it's easy to use and cost-effective. So our first question is from um, sorry, I'm going to mispronounce your name, um, Pranavathiani, and they're asking, what's the difference between real-time PCR and multiplex, multiplex PCR? Okay, hello. So thanks for your question. Um, the real difference between real-time PCR and multiplex PCR is that when people talk about real-time PCR, they're often referring to singleplex Multi, uh, singleplex PCR, they just don't say it. So usually in each real-time PCR reaction, you are only looking at one target. So you're only looking at one amplicon in real-time. Whereas in multiplex PCR, you are looking at more than one amplicon at a time. And multiplex PCR can be carried out in real-time, where you would use fluorescent probes and quantify as the amplification is going on, how much uh, target is present, or it can also be carried out conventionally. So in a normal PCR uh, cycler with um, in tubes, where you just, instead of adding in one primer pair, you add in a few primer pairs together. So that is really the, the difference between multiplex and real-time PCR. I hope that, I hope that has, has answered your question. Yeah, I think that does. And so we have a question from Abdullah asking about um, quantitative PCR. Can you use a PCR technique such as quantitative, like, uh, sorry, can you use a PCR technique as a quantitative method rather than real-time PCR by using a housekeeping gene as a positive control? Mm, could you just say that a question again? Sorry, Amanda. So um, if you could do the, if you could multi use multi multiplex PCR as a quantitative method. So um, maybe have one of your targets be a housekeeping gene as a positive control. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. You can uh, essentially put anything into a multiplex reaction as long as you know that the primers are all working in the same conditions, in the same um, cycling conditions and with the same uh, PCR components, so the same concentrations of DNPPs and magnesium and so on. As long as all primers are working with the same efficiency, there is no okay. restriction on what you can put in. And then we have a question from Renee asking um, what the concentration of DNA do you recommend for a temp um, for the template? Ooh, um, <laughs> these questions are always difficult to answer because it will depend on um, it will depend on many factors. Um, 
as a rule of thumb, I usually say somewhere between 10 and 100 nanograms of DNA. Okay. Yeah. And then um, Sumia, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, how many standards do you have to run for real-time PCR? Um, to make a standard curve? Um, I think you need to... I'm not sure that there is a rule of, of thumb on this. There is, there is actually, um, in the previous webinar, I actually gave a link to a, a resource that you could use for sort of, you could say, publishing guidelines on what is expected for you to be able to publish real-time PCR data. I usually go with around six standards. Okay. Uh, as in six points on the standard curve. That makes sense because then you have yeah. enough to actually you have a chance a to curve. get a straight line and you also have a chance to remove an outlier if there is one and still okay, have our, a good set of data points yeah so our next question i'm not sure if you're going to have any experience with but you might be able to point somebody in the right direction so catherine's asking about detecting amplicons of a multiplex pcr with next generation sequencing oh um i mean I don't have experience with that, no, but but I I can't see how it would not be possible. Um, if you treated the amplicons of a multiplex PCR in the same way that you would treat um, a whole RNA extraction, then I would imagine that it could be processed for next generation sequencing. But that is a question I think that you would need to address to somebody who is more familiar with sequencing. Okay. because they would know if they receive this kind of sample or not and if they could work with it. And then we have a question about, in one of your slides you mentioned, and this is from Azeen, um, in one of your mm -hmm. slides you mentioned that multi multiplex PCR can be used for detecting copy number variation. Could you explain a little bit about how that would work? Um, copy number variation. Um, oh, I'm just drawing a blank now. Just, uh, just give me a moment. Um, yes, um, I haven't done it myself, to be honest, so I, I can't say that I know very much about it. Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I would like to try and find some additional information um, when the webinar is finished and perhaps make it available for the, for, uh, for the person okay. in some way. Yeah. 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 If you want to, if, um, Azine, if you want to pass along um, your email address, I can send it along to Karen. Um, I know from great. other experience that I've worked with other people in the labs, what you do is you measure the um, amplification level of the particular um, gene that you're looking at for the copy number. So you know that in normal cells, you get this you have this amount of copy you have these number of copies of this gene mm. and then you compare that to the full change in your um, experimental group but yeah. I don't know if that works differently for multiplex yeah because that's kind of like a relative quantification almost yeah yeah that's how I've seen it done but I don't know if that's yeah. um, how it would be yeah. it's difficult to distinguish between if it's because there are more copies of the gene or if be because the, the promoter of the gene has just been altered and it's right. now been expressed more. So I will dig into it and okay. see what I can find. Yeah, it's a good question. 
So then we have our next question from David and he's asking, do you need to perform a primer limiting assay? Yeah, you can do. I mean, if um, it's a it's it's a good idea, and it's something that is often suggested by the uh, companies who produce multiplex reagents, um, especially if you have a feeling that you're working with uh, targets that are present at quite different amounts. It can be a good idea to to figure out the right primer concentration for each. So it never hurts. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. But and it may not be it may not be necessary for every for every, every experiment. Yeah, every project. And then Morgan asks about um when would multiplexing with fluorescence tagging be advantageous for genotyping over something like M13 tagging? Yeah. Um again, I don't have a very specific answer for that. Um I guess the fact that it is multiplex could be an advantage in itself because it may allow you to analyze a lot of SNPs uh, with a very limited amount of starting material. And I'm guessing that in itself could be an advantage, um, especially okay. if, it's, uh, if it's patient material. And then we have a question Oh, from Catherine again asking, um, and this one I'm not sure because I don't know what the upper limits would be. but. Um, how realistic would it be to achieve a multiplex PCR of 100 or more targets? That seems like quite a bit. Yeah, I don't think you can do that with uh, the fluorescence setup. Uh, mm -hmm. And you definitely can't do it with the um, electrophoresis setup. Um, but there is, um, and I mentioned it in the talk, this uh, chemically tagged probes. And, and that's actually, that could be possible. So here you have, um, your primers, which are each tagged with some molecule which has a known molecular mass and which creates a specific pattern in a mass spectrometer. And so you will amplify your PCR products with these primers in a multiplex setup. And every time uh, an amplicon is generated, it will be tagged with whatever molecule is on that primer. And then at the end of the run, all the amplicons will be taken together and they will be washed to remove any unbound primer and unbound uh, unused DNTPs and so on. And then the amplicons will be subjected to UV treatment because this UV will actually uh, break the bond between the molecule and the amplicon. And then those molecules can be taken together and put into a mass spectrometer and identified by virtue of their mass. And in this way, you can get both a quantitative and a qualitative readout for how many different uh, amplicon species were present and in the relative amounts. And I don't know what the upper limit is for that, but I would imagine that it would, it would certainly allow you to look at a lot more targets than any of the fluorescent setups. So it could be worth looking into if um, it's called mass tagging. Okay. If that's the way you want to go, yeah. And then I guess kind of along those same lines with tags, um, Mikhail asks, how can you use nucleotide tags for the primers and then sequence the PCR products? So I guess you could do something similar to what you were talking about. Yeah, I guess you would probably need a way to leave the tags off. Um, I'm not. I'm not entirely. Uh, I'm not very familiar with sequencing. Um, setups, to be honest. So I'm, I, I'm not sure I could answer that question in, in the detail that the person might be looking for. Okay. Um, and then um, yeah. we have a question from Sumia asking about if you can run a gel with the products of a real-time PCR. You can, yes. Uh, okay. A multiplex, a multiplex uh, 
I guess it is a multiplex. Yes, you can, um, as you can always run a gel, um, mm-hmm. but you can only distinguish one amplicon from another if you have design primers that amplify um, amplicons of different sizes. Uh, and as I mentioned, you need to have at least 30 base pairs uh, in size between each amplicon to to see a difference on, on an agarose gel. Yeah. Okay. And we're having a question about, we have a question from Leanne about optimizing a multiplex PCR. Mm-hmm. Um, they have two primer pairs, and it's looking like one primer set is less efficient in amplifying the target than the other primer. I'm only one in there together in the multiplex, I guess, separately, they're both fine. Okay. Um, is adjusting primer concentration the only option, or do you know of anything else that could be done? I mean, if the person hasn't done it already, then I think they should try to reduce the primer concentration of the one that is working, because it could just be that that uh, target is present in much higher amounts, and so it is swallowing up some of the components like the DNTPs, mm-hmm. which means that the other primer pair is uh, able to work under singleplex conditions, but just doesn't doesn't get a look in in the multiplex setup. So if they haven't done that already, then that would be the way to go. And then or, uh, design a, or just try to design a new set of primers. A new set of primer pairs. Yeah. And then we have one question from Yusuf, which I think this might be the last question that we have or that we'll be able to take today. And they're asking, are there any consequences if the amount of template DNA in a multiplex PCR is below its optimal amount? I mean, you could say that if you don't have enough template that you will run into a scenario where you will not be able to reach a threshold signal if you're say if you're amplifying by fluorescence detection that you simply won't be able to get a signal for one of your targets but if you're worried about not having enough uh, template material you can always run a pre-amplification step okay so, oh, that's so good idea. I mean, if you yeah yeah well that brings us to the end of the seminar So thank you again, Karen, for a very illuminating presentation and a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much. (laughs) And thanks also to our sponsor, Kyogen. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we've lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Kaijin and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 